When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The year-over-year headline number at 9.1%. June CPI data is already out of date because energy prices have come down. What you're hearing there is sort of like a Wizard of Oz. Don't look behind the curtain. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. May Israel and the United States continue to grow and prosper together for the benefit of the entire world. If the U.S. pulls out of the Middle East, China and Russia move in, and that's a big spot to fill. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The CPI hits hard in Washington. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as today's inflation report feeds both sides of the argument over spending and whether the Biden economic agenda has a future. We'll talk about it with Maya McGinnis, president of the committee for a responsible federal budget. President Biden touches down in Israel, a trip aimed at shoring up relationships and oil. We'll discuss it with CIA officer turned Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, Democrat from Virginia, who serves on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Analysis from our signature panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us. The CPI certainly landed hard this morning in Washington. Reaction swift from both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. A statement this morning from the president called it unacceptably high and reminded, as we heard from the press secretary yesterday, it does not reflect the full impact of the last month of lower gas prices. Same argument on Capitol Hill as Democrats use this as an argument for the reconciliation bill that we have been talking about here. The drug price component, lower deficit spending, Republicans using the same argument for why that shouldn't happen. And that's where we begin with Maya McGinnis, president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. With us now on Bloomberg Sound On, Maya, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be back with you. Well, now that you've seen today's CPI and you've had a minute to digest this, what does it mean for the Democratic agenda in Washington? We've been talking about another reconciliation bill lately. Does this mean the store is closed for the rest of summer? Well, I mean, it's, it, is, it is bad news all around, but it is bad news that actually might be good news for the reconciliation bill hmm. if we follow the policies that make sense. And that's a big if, because things are 
not always sensible in D.C. these days. But um, the reconciliation bill, as people know, has changed massively from what it used to be, which was a huge kind of budget-busting, many, many trillions, even more than it was advertised, with some gimmicks in it, and it was something that kind of imploded on its own weight. But the new version of it, everything that we're hearing, is really a very different structure, which is Mm -hmm. more modest in its size, about a trillion dollars, what we're reading, and half of that would go to deficit reduction. And I guess what I would point out is from what we're hearing is that the deficit reduction portions of that bill, the the parts that would focus on health care savings, Um, and uh, the fact that it would have higher revenues, those things are some of the most important things for the fiscal policies run by the federal government that would actually push against inflation. Okay. So the point would be inflation's really bad. It's not going away anytime soon. Uh, The more that that we can do at the federal level to help the Fed where the heavy lifting is, Mm -hmm. the better it's going to be. And so I think that gives a lot of economic justifications for the structure it sounds like reconciliation may be. Well, that's fascinating. I've been calling it Build Back Better Light. Uh, The White House says exactly what you just said, that this is actually what we need now to bring prices lower, to bring the deficit lower. Republicans say you're spending money like drunken sailors. I mean, we even saw Mitch McConnell throw down his uh, the gauntlet on the China competitiveness bill over this. But Maya, I was taken by Senator Joe Manchin's statement on the CPI report today. He talked about the pain facing families in West Virginia, but he ended with this line. No matter what spending aspirations some in Congress may have, it is clear to anyone who visits a grocery store or a gas station that we cannot add any more fuel to this inflation fire. Does that sound like someone about to vote yes for a trillion dollar bill? So uh, I think actually it could from what the bill and listen, we don't know what the bill is going to be. But what Joe Manchin has basically single handedly done is change this bill from a huge deficit increasing bill Mm -hmm. to something that would have deficit savings, bring the deficit down by about half a trillion dollars. So absolutely, that would be the opposite of throwing fuel on the fire. Now, they're still going to be spending a lot of money. And one Mm -hmm. could say, well, they should spend less and save more through more deficit reduction. But from the new structure, the, the Build Back Better Light, as you're saying, um, now that it has deficit reduction in, in it instead of a lot of borrowing, it's consistent with fighting the price rises that he's seeing in West Virginia and we're seeing all over the country. So, mm-hmm. again, I think it does make sense that if everybody kind of follows the reasoning rather than looking at it from a political angle, which is sure. probably how most people are looking at it, but if they think about the economic effects, this would be pro-fighting inflation and you, you want to do every single thing you can to row in that direction right now. All right. So this is a very positive take from Maya McGinnis. Now, let's <laughs> let's just I'm usually very pessimistic. Well, I don't know. But it, look, it, it, this is why we wanted to talk to you, though. And let's so let's just extrapolate this a little bit. Let's assume re- this reconciliation bill moves forward. I already mentioned Mitch McConnell on this. So I guess my question is, can you have both? Can Democrats get this done? And could there still be a bipartisan a China competes bill? You seek the CHIP Act and the rest. Yeah, and that that is a tough political question because as we get closer to the election, it becomes more difficult for all policymakers who really want, in a bipartisan way, to get that work done yeah. uh, to come together. But uh, boy, am I feeling optimistic compared to normal. <laughs> I think you could see both of those happen. I think you could see the reconciliation bill, and I think you could see something bipartisan, or you could take some of those policies and see which of them could fit into the reconciliation bill and get something done that way. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that said, listen, the calendar is short between now and the election. Um, people are much folk, more focused on their 
elections right now than doing policy. And I know there's a very high level of frustration on the Hill about policymakers who care about all of these ideas, feeling like they are there's just no avenue to move forward. So um, I wouldn't bet on both, but I think it's possible. Well, I'm going to throw another uh, iron on the fire here, and that's uh, defense spending. The House taking up the National Defense Authorization Act this week, and we're in a very different world than we were when the request was made, Maya, due to inflation and the billions of dollars in weapons we've been sending to Ukraine. The House version is just over $800 billion, at least at this stage. Is that number going to end up being a lot higher? Will there be an appetite for more? Uh, it probably is. And here's where my, my optimism ends. So okay. when it comes to the appropriations, I think we're going to see, and this is normal for the appropriations process, but more so now, is that there's going to be a pushing up of the price tag on the defense side. There are a lot of arguments for that, but it's not clear how many more dollars we actually need. A lot of time this is virtue signaling, showing how you want to spend more on the things that you think are important priorities. Yeah. There will be a struggle over that, and it may well be met by the thing then agreed to actually bump up the spending on the non-defense domestic discretionary area of the budget also. This is a deal we often see, which is we'll spend more in our area, you spend more in your area. The problem with all of this is none of this will be paid for. None of it will be offset. And therefore, that means it's more borrowing. That goes back to the inflation story in the wrong direction. Every dollar we borrow is going to put more money into the economy rather than paying for it. And that's going to be inflationary. So more deficit spending. We've got a lot of stuff to buy. And it's not just Ukraine and the cost of this proxy war, but we have to we have to refill our own inventories. There's plenty of things we have to spend money on. And it's not that you can't spend money, (laughs) that you have to pay for the things that you want to spend money on. And occasionally picking and choosing would also be an excellent part of budgeting. We don't do that very often. Everybody should keep in mind, we don't even have a budget in place this year. We are just about to hit the point where we are three months late in Congress coming up with a budget, and they're not even lifting a finger to try to pass one. So that's that's a big part of this problem as well. Maya McGinnis, I haven't asked you about the Federal Reserve yet. Uh, People came out of this CPI report today and said 100 basis points. (laughs) And I, I can't really imagine it. Even if I saw it, I'm not sure how that would feel. But I wonder how concerned you are about the trajectory here. The Federal Reserve is the first to say that it cannot impact oil prices, energy at large, or food prices. That's why they look at the core. Uh, But those are the two very things that are driving inflation to these historic levels. So while the Fed is hiking interest rates, it is not solving those two problems, but appears to be sending us into a recession. Is that how you see it? Well, I think the jury's still out on whether that we, whether we'll be in a recession, but I think it's certainly likely, given the conditions, without question it is. I think the Fed, I mean, I, I don't think we're going to see uh, 100 basis points without some guidance that that's going to happen ahead of time, so I assume yeah. it's 75. But, I mean, we're going to see aggressive rate hikes, and that certainly means that it's more likely that we go into a recession. And it is very difficult to control some of these specific parts of the economy where the big problems are. And that has to do with the fact that all of this is brought on by both the the demand side and the supply side, right? By flooding the economy with too much in the last um, COVID spending bill, which yeah. which led to inflation, and then all the supply chain problems that we've had since. So the best tools we have are from the Fed. The tools that can help them are borrowing less and bringing our deficits down. But the problem is we are in a situation that we don't have complete control. We are too interdependent as a global economy, and right. uh, things have gotten out of control. And this is going to be tough to weather. It is going to be a bumpy road. 
Well, that's why you wonder if the Fed wants to drive us, maybe not necessarily into a recession, but but certainly to such low growth that demand for things like oil and food start to come down. That's a pretty tough scenario to be in, isn't it? That's a pretty tough, tough scenario. I mean, one of the worst things about having to fight the situation we're in is that there's people who are undergoing real hardship from the economic conditions. Yeah. And the true answer about what we do to fight it is we ask people to spend, buy less of those things, That's right. spend less money. We actually need people to be saving more money. But when gas and food and rent are eating up more of your pocketbook, that's a really tough ask. And so um, this, this, is, this is why you want to not get in this, in this situation in the first place. Here, here. Maya McGinnis, great to talk with you, president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Thanks for your time and insights today on Bloomberg. Thanks so much. We assemble the panel next for their take. Rick Davis, Jeannie Shanzano on the fastest hour in politics. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. It's always a fun time in Washington when political opponents use the same argument for different ends. Democrats say we need a spending bill right now because of inflation. Republicans say we can't afford a spending bill because of inflation. Listen to New York Congressman Hakeem Jeffries. This is Democratic leadership. He, he leads the House Democratic Caucus. Our focus really is is to make America as affordable as it can be for American families and everyday Americans. And we've taken legislative step after legislative step to do that. It's my hope that whatever comes out of the Senate is focused on lowering costs for everyday Americans, consistent with what we've done in the House. But that wouldn't work according to Republicans like Congressman Bill Huizinga of Michigan talking today on Capitol Hill. He serves on the House Financial Services Committee. We uh, we uh, on this committee on financial services have been talking about this for well over a year, trying to rein in the Federal Reserve, trying to rein in Congress's appetite for spending, knowing that that is fueling this. And if we don't do so soon, we are going to be even worse trouble. Let's assemble the panel for their take. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. I'm not going to try to turn you guys into economists here. We're curious, of course, about policy and political outcomes. Does this 
a genie mean as I asked Maya McGinnis? And by the way, I was I was taken by her optimism uh, on the future of a reconciliation bill. Does this make it less likely or does it shut it down? Well, I, too, was taken by it, and I am here to balance that out with a bit of pessimism. So I will balance Maya out in that because I agree with Maya. If they followed what makes sense from a policy perspective and an economic perspective, they would go through with this skinny bill, as you've been talking about. But the reality is about politics. And you rightly said the the thing that we're all thinking. What does Joe have to say about it? And that is Joe Manchin. And he was very, very clear. So how did you interpret the statement? I interpreted the statement as putting the brakes on this discussion. And let's not forget, Joe Manchin is to start with, what about Kristen Cinema? You're just playing people from the House. What about people in the House? They have so little room to maneuver in this. And oh, by the way, Senator Schumer is laid up in New York City with COVID while we're trying to do all this. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is such a difficult position to be in. So yes, from a policy perspective, I agree with Maya. But from a politics perspective, the amount of spending they're talking about when you're talking about inflation at a 40 year high, very difficult for me to imagine you're not going to lose a couple of Democrats here or there. And that's enough to kill this thing. Rick, he ends the statement again. Joe Manchin, no matter what spending aspirations some in Congress may have, it's clear to anyone who visits a grocery store or gas station that we cannot add any more fuel to this inflation fire. What does that say to you? Well, I think he's aligning um, what what Maya was saying that people need to do, which is actually spend less money with what he wants to do in government, which is actually spend less money. And okay. so how can you ask the American public to do something that you're not willing to do yourself? Does that make a call for the legislation that he's been talking about with Chuck Schumer, though, to have deficit reduction, to have lower drug prices? Was that an argument for it or against it, I guess, is my question. Well, as long as he raises revenue. And, of course, he you know, he has a plan to raise taxes, potentially, yeah. to, to pay for that. And that's my McGinnis's point. Look, you don't want to just you know write blank checks from the Federal Reserve to pay for government. You want to actually take it out of existing funds and, and so or raise new revenue. I, I can't imagine it's a good idea to start taxing people right before a uh, right before an election. And, and, and it's not like they haven't spent a lot of money already. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. sensitive to the need to fix some of these problems that government has, but this has been a big check right in Congress, and I'm sure they're starting to feel the pinch. If you're a Democrat right now, uh, Jeannie, and, and that's the side of the aisle you're coming from, how important is this versus getting this uh, a bipartisan effort done on the China Competes bill, getting the CHIP Act passed, which we've been told for... Well, a year now that that was a way to to lower inflation, to start making semiconductors here in the U.S. It's critically important. And I have to say, on a positive note, I think Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo has been so on top of this in pushing for the bill. And I think they are right, as is Chuck Schumer, to talk about it from the perspective of national security. I think that's the way to keep some of those Republicans who may be tempted to drop off this thing. But it, it is still going to be difficult at 52 to get that done. But I do think on that point, Gina Raimondo is sort of leading the charge for the cabinet and the administration. And, you know, my bet would be if they can get something, it would be on the chips bill because you're more yeah, right. likely to be if able you had to, to make the choice, though. That's what Democrats might be facing. You might have to choose between the two. And I have to admit, the conversation with Gina Raimondo hasn't changed a lot in the last six months. No, it hasn't. And, you know, if they're if they have to choose, I think this is where the difficulty is, because I think many Democrats want to go with that reconciliation. They want both. But if they have to choose, they're probably going to go reconciliation. And that's going to leave the American public probably with neither. Joe Biden wants that prescription drug plan. He wants to say he lowered the deficit, Rick. That's is that better for him than saying we're going to start investing in computer chips here in places like Ohio? 
Yeah, I don't think it's a binary decision. I mean, like the House could take up the Senate bill on the CHIPS Act, $52 billion, and pass it tomorrow, and he could be signing it on the day he gets back. Why doesn't I mean, he tell him to do that, then? That's how easy that is. And then you then still Mitch McConnell in the game matter, on reconciliation. Right? Exactly. Well, so how come he doesn't... Someone's got to say that, though, you know, beyond Rick Davis on this program. I mean, you got a couple of House members who are arguing, oh, I've got some things I want to change. Well, that blows the whole deal. So just yeah. suck it up. It was a bipartisan bill. Republicans and Democrats pass that in the Senate. And the, the, and the House would be nuts not to take that up tomorrow and pass it. One thing it sounds like you agree, both of you, with Maya McGinnis on, though, is the store is not closed. More things could, in fact, come from this Congress before the end of summer. Our signature panel, Rick Davis, Jeannie Shanzane, will be back there with us for the hour as we turn next to the trip abroad. President Biden has landed We'll be joined ahead by Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger of the Foreign Affairs Committee. This is Bloomberg. President Biden's trip to the Middle East gets underway with all the pomp and circumstance you would expect. There we go. They gave him the treatment. The red carpet, the color guard, the band. Of course, the leadership with him there. On the tarmac, Air Force One parked behind them. They did a nice ceremony in what looked like very hot sun. And the president spoke into the sun, standing outdoors there, about the relationship here between our two nations. Here he is. May Israel and the United States continue to grow and prosper together for the benefit of the entire world. Went on to say that he supports a two-state solution, knowing that that's not in the offing on this trip. And, of course, he's not spending the whole time in Israel. He will uh, go to the West Bank, and then he's on to Saudi Arabia. That's going to be the big one on Friday, as we've discussed the meeting with MBS, the ask for oil, and so forth. But security has become a big part of this conversation, at least around this trip, whether you believe that's why he's going or not. Diplomacy. And you could see security through the guise of energy here, right? We talk about energy security all the time. So is that more of what we're talking about in these statements? The op-ed from the president, statements from the White House, Jake Sullivan, were there for security. This is where we begin the conversation. I'm curious to hear uh, what the congresswoman has to say. Uh, Abigail Spanberger, uh, of course, Democrat from Virginia, serves on the House a foreign affairs committee and is with us now uh, for more on this congresswoman welcome back thank you so much for having me join you much has been said about the president's trip to the middle east here and as a member of the house foreign affairs committee and a former cia officer i know you have a unique view on that part of the world the president says this trip is about security his critics say it's about getting more oil but are they the same thing i think that's a complicated question, uh, I think that one could make an argument either way. Notably, what's important is when the president is traveling throughout the Middle East or in Saudi Arabia specifically, he has to, he must advocate for American values. He must raise the issue of Jamal Khashoggi's murder. Mm -hmm. He must uh, continue to ensure that we have strong expectations of what our Saudi partners are or are not bringing to the table, whether they are or are not. Um, uh, meeting the expectations that we have in terms of uh, the the values that they um, are kind of abiding. Notably, as a former CIA officer, I know that they have been important partner, partners in our counterterrorism work throughout the Middle East and beyond. Uh, and, and so certainly when we're saying it's about national security, yes, it's about yeah. ensuring 
that, that we continue to have a strong voice, a strong relationship with the Saudis, but one where we do demand mm-hmm. uh, certain uh, expectations of, of behavior and uh, uh, engagement on the world stage. Well, what deliverables are you looking for in terms of energy and diplomacy, uh, bringing the Saudis, for instance, into the Abraham Accords? Is that the kind of announcement that Americans should look forward to at the end of the week? Uh, so I think that that would be an extraordinary announcement if that's one that is able to be made. Uh, certainly the Abraham Accord has done so much for the normalization of some relationships within the Middle East. It's, mm-hmm. They have been an important step forward uh, for the safety and security of our friends and allies, the Israelis, within uh, the region. And it's also been important from an economic standpoint, bringing uh, economic engagement and, and with it uh, certain expectations for um, uh, democratic values uh, to some area, some countries within the region. Uh, so if, if we do see movement towards that sort of agreement, I think that would be extraordinary. President Biden today made clear he supports a two-state solution. Some of the first words out of his mouth as he arrived on the tarmac. Do you, Congresswoman, as well? I absolutely support a two-state solution. He also indicated that that's a long way off. Is there any point in talking about it as he prepares to sit down with the Saudis? No, I think it's important to continue to demonstrate and be very clear in what one's goals are. Uh, We may view that we are uh, many paces away from a two-state solution, but that doesn't uh, remove the necessity that we continue to advocate for a two-state solution, that we continue to demonstrate uh, through our discussions, through our policy, through the priority objectives, and through our discussions with anyone in the region, be it Israelis or otherwise, uh, that a two-state solution is one that uh, we continue to advocate for as a country. president made some news this morning in an interview uh, conducted by Israeli media saying that he's committed to keeping the Iranian Revolutionary Guard on the list of foreign terror organizations, even if it means no Iranian nuclear deal. Do you support that? Is he right on that? Uh, absolutely. We should not be removing the IRGC from the terror watch or the terror list. A hundred percent. I'm in agreement with him on that. It's interesting. Some of the lines that are being drawn right now as he prepares to talk with MBS, we understand that Vladimir Putin, for instance, is is headed to Iran. Iran is going to be providing Russia with drones for use uh, in Ukraine. Are we entering a, a world order where we've got this sort of axis and maybe you see it already in place between Iran and Russia and then you'll have Israel, the United States, Saudi Arabia on the other side? I think we are seeing uh, an alignment of countries and I think that this is incredibly important whether or not we you know, want to call it with, with some level of finality this is a new world order. I, I think it's most appropriate or, or perhaps uh, kind of uh, most beneficial for the way that we interpret the threats that exist or uh, the partnerships that exist for us to recognize that we are seeing an orienting of certain countries towards others. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is exactly why U.S. global leadership is important. This is why our strengthened relationships with NATO uh, are important. This is why um, uh, us recognizing the importance of moving away from dependence on uh, the oil produced in in, in certain, yeah. uh, um, you know, petrol-driven regimes is, is important. Um, and so I think that we should always be very clear on who's uh, aligning themselves with whom on the world stage. Um, and this is also a reason why the United States then needs to continue uh, galvanizing support uh, for organizations such as NATO, mm-hmm. uh, while the United States needs to look within our own hemisphere for greater partnerships, economic and political, 
so that we can continue uh, to ensure that that we are aligned very, very clearly with uh, democratic nations the worldwide, uh, and that, in fact, that's the club that other countries want to be yeah. a part of. More broadly, uh, Congresswoman, when we look at this trip and, and the conversation that preceded it, including the president's op-ed, the idea of him asking for more oil, the concerns that some have uh, with what he might be able to do here to help lower gas prices, are expectations simply too high to, to be able to make this a success? I think that it's important to have uh, clear goals, and, and even if they are uh, kind of a starting point for uh, expectations or negotiations, I think that's that's fair. Uh, certainly, I have long held, as have many members of Congress, great concern about Saudi engagement within Yemen mm-hmm. um, and the ongoing atrocities that we see occurring there. Uh, so I, I do hope and expect that the president will, again, make clear uh, to his Saudi counterparts, to anyone that he may meet with, uh, the expectations that the United States holds uh, for uh, Saudi Arabia to be a responsible um, uh, you know, actor on the world stage in terms yeah. of how it is that they... Uh, choose to engage economically, so not locking down um, uh, oil production uh, that is important to global markets, and also, importantly, not uh, continuing uh, to support uh, uh, international um, atrocities as, as though, like those that we've seen in Yemen. Do you expect to see gas prices drop as a result of this trip? Um, I think that's a couple of steps ahead of yeah. uh, what I'm willing to declare as an eventuality. I do think that sure. in the House, you know, we've passed good legislation, the Lower Food and Fuel Cost Act. Uh, certainly, we are taking an all-of-the-above approach at trying to bring down the cost of gas. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly, directionally, we've seen some progress, uh, though, given uh, the inflation numbers that Americans continue to experience, that's that's not yet anywhere close uh, to being a point of celebration. But um, I appreciate that the administration continues to be focused on this issue. And, and certainly, I think, as evidenced by our recent votes, um, supporting biofuel, supporting ethanol, um, and uh, uh, the bills that we've put forth in the House and passed in the House with bipartisan yeah. support, uh, we're, we're also working in tandem to, to take strong steps forward. And I well, hope with that- all of that said, gosh knows we're hearing about inflation every day, Congresswoman. You're preparing for midterm elections. Is the president an asset or a liability considering the environment that we're in for a Democrat running for re-election? So, you know, in my race, I uh, have a record. I've been in office now for uh, almost two terms. Uh, I have worked uh, aggressively on issues that matter to the people I represent, be it related to agriculture issues and uh, monopolistic behavior within the meat processing industry, lowering the cost of prescription drugs, focus on veterans issues, uh, toxic exposures, uh, infrastructure, of course, which is a, a major and important issue within my district. Um, and, and so I am out on the campaign trail making sure that my constituents, uh, current and future, mm-hmm. recognize what it is that I've done. I'm meeting people, making sure that they know who I am, what my background is, what it is that I bring to my work on Capitol Hill and in the district, and why I'm asking sure. uh, to be reelected to continue that service. Would you bring Joe Biden with you, though? Along the campaign trail, uh, you know, at this point, I'm I'm out there meeting people individually. Um, You know, I was (laughs) very happy to invite the president to come to my district to meet my constituents to talk about prescription drug prices. 
um, to give my constitu- my constituents the opportunity to speak directly to you know the leader of the free world and say yeah. this is what the cost of insulin means to me. This is right. what the cost of my prescription drugs means to my family. Um, and that's the type of advocacy that I will always do. And that's you know outside of politics. That's just policy making sure that if I have the chance uh, to to give any constituent the ability to speak with uh, the leader of the free world, that I'm going to do that. Um, and on the campaign trail, I'm I'm running around making sure people know who I am, how to vote, when to vote, and why they should vote for me. That was an incredibly effective answer. I don't know how you did that, but I'm still going to be thinking about it later. Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, thank you for being with us once again on Bloomberg. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We'll reassemble the panel next. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, their take on the trip here, the way it's starting, and what we should expect later on this week. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Thanks for being with us here on Bloomberg Sound On as we reassemble the panel here. And picking up where we left off with Congresswoman uh, Spanberger here, the president on the tarmac, on the red carpet, reaches for the two-state solution. And you'll have to listen to the language that he used because he's not expecting this, obviously, to take place tomorrow. But it is part of the conversation on this trip. Here's President Biden. Greater peace, greater stability, greater connection. It's critical. It's critical, if I might add, for all the people of the region, which is why we'll, be, we'll discuss my continued support, even though I know it's not in the near term, a two-state solution. That remains, in my view, the best way to ensure the future of equal measure of freedom, prosperity, and democracy for Israelis and Palestinians alike. Sounds today uh, from the arrival ceremony in Tel Aviv. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Uh, Rick, is it important for him to restate this as he begins talks? He had just arrived, of course, at this point. And you've talked a little bit about the idea of bringing Saudi Arabia, for instance, into the Abraham Accords. Is that the way to get there? Look, I think that um, the Palestinians had a hard slog during the Trump administration. You know, the uh, two-state solution was dead within his administration. And yeah. so I think that, that Biden was under a lot of pressure to sort of get that back on the table mm-hmm. officially uh, as president. And uh, it's been a, a constant within the Democratic Party's, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
policy reviews for the region. So he did what he had to do, but he was not going to get into the slippery slope of being the guy who's going to try and deliver it. He had eight years that he watched it happen in the Obama administration, and he made no progress on it. And I'm sure he does not want to attach his wagon to that policy phenomenon. Isn't that something? He went out of his way to say uh, that, you know, even though it's not in the near term, uh, Jeannie, I don't know if that was in the speech or not, but he certainly said it. He did. And, and, and typical Joe Biden, and he's absolutely right. While he has long supported it, and I give him credit for raising mm-hmm. it as soon as he gets there. What's there typical? Is, uh, well, typical that he says, you know, he talks about the elephant in the room. There's no support for that on the ground. That's the reality there. But I give him right. credit for raising that, um, you know, as soon as he landed. And I thought he did a very warm greeting with the Israeli officials. He talked about this bone deep relationship with Israel. Mm-hmm. And he made certain, unlike some of his predecessors, that Israel was his first stop. It's his 10th visit to the Middle East, but his first as president. Then it's on to the West Bank, uh, Rick. Is it going to be, will there be similar energy when he gets there? Yeah, look, I mean, it'll be more negative energy, right? Because the Palestinians are going to be looking for, you know, uh, all kinds of promises to make about, you know, limiting the settlements and and, and that kind of thing and and trying to get engaged in this administration to open up, uh, you know, various kinds of access points for them that have been closed since Trump. So, yeah, it's going to be a different kind of conversation, but one worth having. Uh, And I think for the purpose of his balance of his trip, it, it is helpful to have that conversation with the Palestinian leaders before he gets to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Boy, I'll tell you, we're talking about handshakes and body language already. This trip is hours old. Uh, Jeannie and Rick, I don't know if you saw this whole uh, handshake controversy here. We'll call it uh, handshake gate or fist bump gate or something. But the president was not supposed to shake hands with the other foreign leaders on this trip, it was said to be a COVID precaution. He was going to be fist bumping. And the idea was, you know, that way he's not holding hands or seen shaking hands with MBS at the end of the week. Uh, he, he did fist bump uh, Prime Minister Lapid as he landed. But then he gives Net, Benjamin Netanyahu a big old handshake because they've known each other for a long time. Jeannie, I, I know this isn't the most important stuff in the world, but now he's got to shake hands when he gets to Jeddah, right? This is the thing I've been watching, so I hope it's important. You know, it was, I thought, just classic when the White House announced that he would not be handshaking because of COVID and the variants. And the minute he got off, you're right, he fist bumps and then he handshakes. I I don't know if he forgot or he got so excited by seeing some of these officials that, you know, he shook hands. We know he likes to rub shoulders and all kinds of things. So he's, you know, a touchy guy. So maybe it was hard, but there it goes. And now he has no reason not to shake MBS's hand. And so it's going to be fascinating to see on Friday. He's just invited the press to watch this. Is he or is he not going to be holding hands with MBS when he gets there? Is this a a, a a faux pas or not, Rick? What do you think? Yeah, I think it's much a two about nothing. I mean, the initial greeting with uh, MBS probably won't even be on camera. Uh, My bet would be they Mm -hmm. do it inside a palace somewhere and uh, and there'll be a public display of the two of them. But uh, I think it's much to do about nothing. He is going to go break bread with MBS. He's going to get all the positives and all the negatives related to that, regardless (laughs) of whether they bear hug or fist pump or shake hands. I asked you guys both about deliverables yesterday. I don't know if you feel the same way about it right now, but does he need to have... Jake Sullivan uh, suggested he will have uh, a, a, a relatively specific statement to make on what he has secured on this trip when it comes to oil genie. Are we talking about, you know, three million barrels a day? What what kind of a message, what kind of a statement has to come from this trip? 
Well, I mean, I mean, what they're hoping to see is that they get something that allows them to see a decrease in those prices. And yeah. a lot of experts saying that's not going to happen, which is why it's so curious. You can't overpromise. It, you should not be overpromising. And there are positive deliverables from this trip. Things about travel, things about regional air defense, you know, the funding of Palestinian hospitals, the visit. There are positives to talk about. Uh, you know, if they can guarantee the oil prices, that's a great thing. Many experts say that's going to be hard to get that win there. In that case, it's a disappointment, Rick. Does he need to be specific, as Jake Sullivan has suggested he will be? Yeah, I think he wants to be, right? He wants to put something on the table that will say that this trip was worth the cost that uh, he had to take to sort of backtrack on the relationship that he uh, has said, you know, uh, Saudi's a pariah state. So what is the trade? The trade's going to be lower gas prices. And and I think that's got to be... Out there, no doubt MBS is going to be willing to participate in this. He's he's part of the beneficiary of this visit. And I'm sure he'll go out and say, we're going to work with OPIC to lower gas prices that we know this is good for this mm-hmm. global economy and we're going to work with these guys. So that, to me, is a, a message to the market. It looks like we're going to get our final January 6th committee hearing next week. The report's now uh, that the primetime event set for Thursday of this week will happen next Thursday. We still don't know exactly who's going to testify or how they're going to wrap up this whole thing. But I want to ask both of you about a comment that was dropped yesterday on cable news, because it's just I I have to know what we're talking about here. And, you know, I could use your help. John Bolton on CNN uh, talking after yesterday's hearing about the idea of a carefully planned coup d'etat. He's talking to Jake Tapper. Apparently he would know a lot about this. Listen. With all due respect, uh, one doesn't have to be brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, what? not here, but, you know, other places, uh, it takes a lot of work. And that's not what he did. It was just stumbling around from one idea to another. Ultimately, he did unleash the rioters at the Capitol. As to that, there's no doubt. Okay, I'm sorry. Back the tape up. Rick Davis, do you know anything about this? Where was he... Helping to plan a coup d'etat. This is the former national security advisor. Yeah, I mean, the only one that I'm really uh, familiar with is Venezuela. This is Venezuela. Look how well well that worked out Does that mean the United States was getting involved in that in a way we didn't know about? Or was he a a rogue agent? I think we telegraphed that uh, Maduro had to go, and and we immediately uh, endorsed the uh, presidency of... uh, Somebody else, and, and, and by almost definition, you know, we, we were participants in fomenting a coup. But if, yeah. if, if John Bolton is holding that up as a great success or a difference than in, in, in January 6th, I would say that uh, he, he may want to find a different coup. <laughs> okay. You ever uh, help to plan a coup, Jeannie? I have not, but I, I loved this because John Bolton was like indignant at the fact that he was, you know, defending, you know, coup people all over the world, that they are brilliant. And if, you know, he won't have it, that they will be insulted as if they could be right. engaging in coups and not be brilliant. I mean, it was, I, you know, I, I couldn't quite wrap my head around it. And, and, and what a thing for Stop. John Bolton to come out and defend. I, I mean, I'm assuming you took him at his word, uh, Rick, people, you know. This is why people wonder about Washington is, you know, is he out there working as a contractor? He was speaking in in plural at first. You know, he's 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 done this type of thing before. 
Yeah, uh, this is why people scratch their head about Washington. Like, who are these folks? Unelected, you know. Um, Mercenaries. Uh, what are they doing with our taxpayers' dollars? And uh, and it's a fair question to ask. I think, you know, John Bolton's got some splaining to do here. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'll, it's, uh, well, I'd say it's all in the book, but I don't think that was in the book. Uh, how about next week? If this happens Thursday, Jeannie, how do they close this? Uh, without it seeming like uh, a, 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 a fade to black, some of the most dramatic testimony was in the, the beginning of this process. Many argued they did not connect a lot of the dots yesterday that they were hoping to with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. What are we in for? What's the final message next week? Well, I think it is a danger. And, and I've heard from several people since the hearing yesterday that they thought there was a little bit too much of grandstanding um, on the part of some of the Congress uh, men and women. And we need a little bit of, of less of that and a little bit more of testimony. So I think the big key is going to be, do they put out that testimony by Cipollone? I think they will. But do they have any other testimony to drop and better yet, live witnesses? And to your point, can they connect the Trump administration to this, you know, effort to mm-hmm. to overturn the election. And, you know, some people don't feel they did a, a, a terrific job doing that yesterday. I think they did a fairly good job, but they need to certainly have new testimony on Thursday. They're going after that 187 minutes, Rick, that uh, it took for for President Trump to tell people to leave, to tell the rioters to leave the Capitol. Uh, do we need new footage or is this more about repackaging everything that we've seen so far into some uh, full smash video that the former president of ABC News is helping them produce right now. Yeah, I just uh, I'm assuming uh, that what they're looking for is a smoking gun in that 187 minutes that has him telling somebody uh, that uh, they need to get up there and bust into the the place and and so they and, need to have something new. Is what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, because that's that is when the riot is happening and he, and and the reason why isn't he asking them to leave? Well, maybe maybe the expectation is that they've got him on the record mm-hmm. uh, or somebody willing to testify to the fact that they they were talking to him during that period of time and he was giving them the go sign. And if they have that, that is a smoking gun. Well, this is going to be, we're understanding at least, uh, according to reports next Thursday, we'll let you know when it's actually formally scheduled, and who knows if we'll know in advance witnesses, other information, and so forth. We will get more views, though, apparently at the Capitol riot and uh, part of this documentary and, and the videotape that he's provided. Rick Davis, thanks as always. Jeannie Shanzano, our signature panel on Bloomberg Sound On. Always a pleasure to spend time talking about some of the most important issues in our lives. That's what we do every day here on the Fastest Hour in Politics. Subscribe to the podcast. If you got here late, it'll be ready for you every evening. I'm Joe Matthew. We'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how 
at thehartford.com. Join global business leaders and investors at the Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit, returning to Singapore on July 31st. Take part in solutions-driven discussions on how to drive business value and unlock opportunity while remaining nimble in times of change and greater ESG accountability. Learn more at BloombergLive.com slash SustainableBizSingapore. That's BloombergLive.com slash SustainableBizSingapore.